walk through the book of Jonah. We're, we will um, really not tackle any of the main text of Jonah this morning. We're going to give a little bit of a background or some information about Jonah as a person, some of the themes of this book, kind of lay a foundation so that when we're reading through it, next week we'll start reading through it verse by verse and unfolding the meanings that are there. But, um, but I thought, I was just working this week through it and developing, and I just really felt like there were some, some key elements that kind of overshadow the entire book that as we're going through it, they were, they're important elements to understand because they will help us as we're looking through the book to identify, okay, what's the Lord dealing with here? What can I learn from this? What truths are being presented to me that are practical to my own life? And so that's the purpose for this morning's message is really more to give us a, a background of what's going on with the person Jonah, what's going on with the um, book of Jonah as uh, um, a prophetic book in the Old Testament and to lay some groundwork for that. And then next week, we'll start walking through it verse by verse and um, expounding on and exposing what exactly the truths are that are, that are here. This is without, I think, question, without question, really, one of the most notable stories in all of the Bible. I don't know of too many people that's not familiar with the story of Jonah and the whale. The, the books that have been written about Jonah and the whale are too many to count. And uh, if you go into a kid's section in a Christian bookstore, you'll probably find a majority of the books are about Jonah and the whale. Right, it's a very, very in- interesting story, a very, very um, fun, if you will, story. Uh, really, I think in many ways the 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 way that it's presented in the Sunday school classes misses the point of the story. They're more interested in a fish swallowing a man, and that's kind of where they go. There's, uh, I think, more to the story than uh, the fish swallowing the man. And it's probably helpful for us to, to be discerning when, when it comes to things like that, that we're not just picking stories out of the Bible that are exciting and fun, but we're actually looking to see what, um, what God might have for us at another level in regards to books like this and other books of the Bible. If you spent any time in Sunday school, I'm sure that you're familiar with the story of, of Jonah and the big fish. It's not only something that's uh, common to churchgoers and Sunday school classes, but this story or this narrative is something that has impacted well-known art pieces and also poetry. So it's, it's infiltrated it into um, really the, uh, the world kind of understands the story or at least the, the idea of Jonah in the big fish. And people have tried to prove it or disprove it There's a lot of debate that goes on amongst scholars in regards to Jonah, you know, what's meant by the book, um, what details are important to the story, what details are true, and what details are just uh, metaphors or analogies. And uh, there's a lot of debate that goes back and forth on on these things. Was Jonah a real person, or is Jonah just a made-up character that... Um, is meant to teach us a certain lesson, uh, kind of similar to Adam and Eve. People do the same thing with Adam and Eve. Is, is Adam and, are Adam and Eve real people, or are they just 
um, made up people to teach us certain principles about humanity as a whole. Our understanding and the way that we address the word of God is that unless it gives us other, unless it gives us reasons not to, we are going to interpret it literally. And there are times where the scripture tells us that it is an analogy or a picture and we, and we, under, we just read a passage about communion being a picture of something. So we get that. We understand that. But if the Bible doesn't give us that direction, what we do is we accept it as being literal truth. It's a story, it's a narrative that actually happened, events that actually happened, and we're meant to understand them with that perspective in mind. We're meant to accept and believe them as if they were events that literally happened. I would just warn you or caution you this morning that... um, a number of modern-day scholars have taken every what we would call supernatural event in the Bible and written it off to either it being a metaphor or it um, being something that is not a literal event. Or they would take and they would try to try to explain it from a scientific perspective of, well, here's how this happened. This wind blew this way, and, and this wind blew this way, and all of a sudden the sea opened up, or all of a sudden the fish swallowed the man, and it was just like that fish was just the perfect pit fish that he could live in. And they, they seek to take the supernatural out of the Word of God. And, and when you take the supernatural out of the Word of God, you are destroying the Word of God, and you're really destroying you're really destroying the gospel because the gospel is a supernatural message. It's not something that you do and you're saved. It's something that the Lord does and he brings about conversion and salvation. I feel like I said something funny because my wife is over here laughing and usually when I say something funny, she, she, she laughs. And Did I say something funny? I didn't say anything funny. Let's see how easily it is to get distracted by your wife. Oh, boy. (laughs) I usually say stupid stuff in my message, just so that you all know. And I usually just have to, my wife will be like laughing, or my kids, all of them will be laughing together, and I'll be like, okay, what stupid method? What stupid thing did I say now? But usually I'm really good at like not even noticing it. I just like keep on going, and they'll be like later, oh, you called Elijah, Elisha, that whole sermon, honey. And I'm like, oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> and so I uh, noticed that she was laughing over there. So I was like, okay, what stupid thing did I say? But they'll tell me later, <clears throat> I'm sure, being kind to me now. So getting back to the serious piece of it. Um, so our stuff, what's that? Don't look that way. It's hard not to look that way. There's a lot of beauty over there. So it's like, I have to have to pay some attention to that side of the room. Um, All right, back to the serious piece of the puzzle. So our study through Jonah is going to focus on two two key elements. And uh, it's really, if if you wanted to title the series, it would be the sovereign mercy, God's sovereign mercy, and God's stubborn messenger. Those are going to be two key elements that we're going to look at as we go throughout the book. God's sovereign mercy... Um, and God's stubborn messenger. God's sovereign mercy is simply that God chooses to show kindness to a wicked Gentile nation. And the, um, Nineveh is that, is that nation that God chooses to show that kindness to. 
And it has nothing to do, we'll look and unfold a little bit about God's mercy this morning, but it had nothing to do with Nineveh being worthy or deserving or being some kind of a unique nation that, that God would say, I choose that nation because, they're, because they have something to offer. It, it, it is totally built around God's mercy. And God's mercy towards a people uh, who are Gentiles, and this is like the first, because we know in the New Testament we're going to be introduced in Acts, the gospel is going to go from the Jews to the Gentiles, right? And we get that, the Jews reject the gospel in the, in the gospels and the Gentiles, and then the Lord says, I'm going to take the gospel from the Jews who have rejected it, and I'm going to give it to the Gentiles, and they will receive it. So we see that in a future events happening, but this is something that's in the Old Testament, it's something that's very unfamiliar to the Jewish people, and we'll be able to understand a little bit as to why Jonah responded the way that he did. When you think about it for a moment, when you look at the New Testament and the way the Jews responded when Jesus said the gospel's going to go to the Gentiles now, I mean, they were not very happy, right? We go back to Jonah, and you see the exact same attitude unfolding in that he, was the, he felt the same way. I mean, and this was, you know, 800 years prior Two. So you kind of get a little bit of where Jonah's coming from and how he responds to the commandment of the Lord in, in, in this book. So um, God's sovereign mercy, his choosing to show kindness to a wicked Gentile nation and God's stubborn messenger, God's choosing of Jonah to deliver the message through which his mercy would be administered. And we'll see, again, how that unfolds from an overview perspective this morning, and then we'll look at it more in detail the next few weeks. There's 48 verses in the book of Jonah, four chapters, 48 verses. We have a specific name of God mentioned 39 times. So God is mentioned 39 times by name in 48 verses. So literally almost every verse you have God's name being mentioned at some level. So we can, we can immediately understand that the book of Jonah is about, it's about God. <clears throat> it's about seeing God. It's about knowing God's character. Again, we lose sight of it because we see Jonah in the fish. I mean, you, don't, you, don't, you can't take me into a bookstore and show me a story of Jonah and the whale and have God be on the front of the book. All, will, all of them will have this big fish and this man on the front of the book. The story of Jonah, the book of Jonah, is about God. It's about seeing God, seeing God's mercy, seeing God's means and his work on, on bringing about his mercy to, a, to an undeserving and wicked people. So uh, 39 times of 48 verses, we see the name of God, um, a name of God being mentioned. And then the story is not only about God, but it's about Jonah. 19 times, 19 or almost half of the verses in Jonah deal with, deal with Jonah. And they use his name specifically. What's interesting about the book of Jonah is you do not find others' names being used. And we're talking about a whole nation of Nineveh. We're talking about a ship full of, of, of workers and, that are in a storm. We're talking about, they talk about a king in chapter number three, I believe it is. And in none of those cases do we have their names mentioned. 
There's no emphasis put on them as individuals. This is a story about Jonah and God. And that's the emphasis. And you have a lot of, you have a lot of, of uh, what we would call peripheral things going on, right? A lot of peripheral things, like a big fish and a storm and a ship <coughs> falling apart and a bunch of pagan um, men on that ship trying to row to shore like we all would try to do. And, and then they all get converted because they throw Jonah off and the, the waters calm down and they all get converted. Then Jonah is, you know, spewed out on the land after being in the belly of a fish for three days, and, and, and that fish is not really super important. It's the God who sent the fish. That's the only part of the story that we read. We make more out of the fish than we do about the God who, who actually sent the fish to swallow Jonah up and then sustained Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days. That's what the story is about. And Jonah comes out of that fish. We don't know what he looks like. Some people think he just looked like a pale, you know, somebody's been in a fish for three days, <laughs> right? But he goes through Nineveh and he preaches a message, a very, very simple message, five Hebrew words. He's basically said to them, repent, repent. And the whole nation repents and turns to God and God shows them mercy and Jonah gets angry. And that's pretty much the story. Jonah, Jonah gets mad at God for showing them mercy. So this story is about two individuals. It's about God, sovereignly merciful, and it's about Jonah, who is, who is stubborn. And we'll unfold what that looks like later. This narrative, which is what it is, is about God calling his servant to deliver a message that would ultimately bring mercy to the Gentiles. Up till now, this mercy has been reserved for the Jewish people, but now God is about to initiate mercy with the Gentiles. And this is a, this is a prophetic book, so we're seeing an Old Testament fulfillment of what God is going to do in the New Testament. It's a, it's, a, it's a foreshadowing, if you will. God is going to show mercy on a Gentile people as a foreshadowing of God showing mercy to the Gentile people in the New Testament. God's mercy in the Old Testament to the Gentile people was temporary. Even to the Ninevites, later they would be destroyed. Later, God would show them justice. Uh, God would judge them later as, as, as Jonah wished he would have done there. So the... the it's a very temporary picture of God showing mercy to the Gentiles, but it's, but it's meant for us to look into the future and to see that God is going to show mercy on the Gentiles. And guess what? That's us. That's us. We're the ones that God has showed mercy to in the Old Testament. We're the ones that he showed mercy to in the New Testament. We're the ones that are pictured in the Ninevites. So it's important to note that God is going to initiate through this messenger, Jonah, God is going to initiate his mercy to the Gentiles. Let me read a couple references to you to give you a picture of this. You're all familiar in the Old Testament with the story of Moses up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. God tells Moses his name. He gives him his name. Very, very, very sacred to the Jewish people very sacred to the Jewish people. The name of God that was given to them, given to Moses on the mountain was very sacred to them. Matter of fact, they would not, it was something that was considered um, profane for them to even say the name. 
Because for them to for for a fleshly human being to speak the sacred name of God was considered to be inappropriate. And so they wouldn't, they wouldn't for, for centuries, they wouldn't say it. Here's what he says to Moses. He says in Exodus 34, the Lord passed before him. Remember the story? He puts Moses in the cleft. Of the, Moses says, Lord, let me see your glory. And the Lord says, I can't show you my glory. If I show you my glory, which is his face, you'll die, right? So he puts Moses in the cleft of a rock and he puts his hands over his eyes like that. I mean, that's the picture that's given to us in Exodus. He's like, okay, you can't look. And then as he's already passed him, he, he takes his hands off of his eyes and then Moses is able to see the backside of the Lord. He's able to see the hinder, the, the King James calls it the hinder part. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sins, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of their fathers on the, children's, on the children and on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. What we see here is this this proclamation, this description of God's character to the Jewish people, that he is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and trespasses and sins. This is the character of God. Now, we know the basis, and he goes on to say that he will never pass over sin, though. So how does he not pass over sin, well, he does not, he's able to be forgiving and not pass over sin on the basis of whom? He's able to be forgiving and not pass over the sin on the basis of Jesus. That's what Romans tells us, that he is able to be just and be the justifier of those who have faith in him. That's why in 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and, and just. He's faithful to forgive and he's just to forgive on the basis of the fact that Jesus Christ paid for our sins. This is what the Lord is telling to, the, to Moses on the mountain, that you're, this is not about you being a perfect people. This is about you being a trusting people, a de- dependent people. And I am a gracious and merciful and loving, uh, faithful, uh, steadfastly loving, forgiving God. And this is to the Jews, and they understood this. And the result at the end of this is Moses quickly bows his head toward the earth and worships God. And watch this in Jonah 4 and verse 2. Here's what, the Lord, here's what Jonah says to the Lord. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? When Jonah was in his own country, he, said that, he obviously said this to the Lord. He said, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, For I knew that you are a gracious God and a merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and and relenting of disaster. What he does is he takes the name of God that was presented to Moses on the mountain and he realizes that God is about to display that same type of kindness to the Gentiles. God is about to display himself as a kind God, as a loving God, as a forgiving God to the Gentile people. And this, as we see through the book of Jonah, and we'll look at it, this was, 
this was difficult for him to, to get. I want you to understand that this is a moment in history where God is opening up the doors for the Gentiles to be saved. It's a moment in history. It's a moment in the Jewish realm, a moment in the, the Hebrews' lives, in Jonah's especially, because he was um, called to go and carry this message to these, to these Gentile people, knowing that God was going to display to them mercy. This is a moment in history that's being fulfilled for us right now in our world. And we need to understand that. Let's look at a few uh, general things. I have two general thoughts this morning that I want you to see. God's sovereign mercy and God's stubborn um, messenger. And just, I want to unfold them for you a, a little bit. First of all, God's sovereign mercy. What is, what is God's mercy? If you're taking notes, God's sovereign mercy is the first one. The second thought is, what is God's mercy? What is God's mercy? God's mercy is God's choosing to, to, to bless a sinful people. He, he makes a choice. The, the, the mercy of God is based solely on the character of God. The very nature of mercy is that it can, it can never be, mercy can never be based anything on the recipient. If it's based on the recipient, it's no longer mercy. It now becomes deserved or earned. It can't, you can't say, I'm going to show you mercy because you did certain things. Mercy is when the judge decides that he has a guilty criminal in front of him who has been, who has been claimed guilty, who has been found guilty. You know, the old cliche, they were found red-handed or caught red-handed, that a person, an individual has been caught red-handed, and the judge, who is God, decides, because he is a merciful and gracious God, to show that person forgiveness. That's what mercy is. God is choosing to show mercy, to show kindness, to give forgiveness, to provide forgiveness to a sinful, undeserving people. And it's built on the basis of God's, because God as a perfect judge can never show mercy on someone who is guilty because then he's not a good judge. The basis of his ability to show you mercy, to show the Gentiles or the Ninevites mercy is that Christ would pay for their sins. There's never any sin that's ever overlooked. God will never overlook any of your sins. Every sin that you ever commit, ever have committed, or ever will commit, every one of them will be paid for in fullness. The question is, will, they be, will it be paid for by you, or will it be paid for by Jesus? Because Jesus is the substitutionary atonement that makes it possible for God to show you forgiveness and to show you kindness. But for those who reject the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ, God will allow them to face what, what we know of as eternal condemnation because the weight of their sin can never be satisfied by them. The reason why hell is a forever is that their sin is so heavy in relation to their forsaking their God that there is no end to it. They could pay and pay the worst punishment for eternity and never satisfy the weight of their sin against Almighty God. 
Can I submit to you this morning that we don't have a great understanding or a great respect for how sinful we really are? The problem is, is our standard has, has gone from being us being compared to God to us being compared to our neighbor. And we start feeling pretty good about ourselves when we compare ourselves to our neighbor. But when you compare yourself to God, it's a different story, isn't it? Your sins are against a holy God who is perfect and righteous. And he shows mercy, he shows kindness on the basis of of his son. The Hebrew word here is hesed. If you are interested in that, it means mercy, it means pity or kindness. If you have your Bibles and you want to turn with me to a, to a, a place that will describe it further, it is the book of Psalms. This word is used throughout the Old Testament, but this passage of Scripture really captures the Hebrew term hesed, which is the loving kindness of God. It is the mercy of God. In Psalm 136, every verse in Psalm 136 describes for us the mercy of God. Psalm 136 in verse number one, it says, Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his mercy, or this version says steadfast love, endures forever. Give thanks to the God of of God's for his mercy or steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who alone does great wonders for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens for his steadfast love endures forever. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I would encourage you to do it because what happens is, is the, the first phrase of every sentence is, is, the, is the product of his steadfast love. It's a fruit of his steadfast love. God does these things because he is by his very nature and by his very character. He is a loving God. He is a merciful God. He is a compassionate God. When Jesus looks out over Jerusalem and he sees all of the wickedness of their heart, the Bible says that he has compassion on them, that he weeps over them because of the compassion of his heart, because they were a wicked people who were like, a sheep, who were like sheep without a shepherd. It is the very nature of God to be a merciful God, to, to show kindness to those who are unworthy and undeserving. To reach down from heaven, we, we, we've said it before and we've, we even sing songs about it, that the Lord reached down so low to grab us. All the way out of the mire in the pits of despair, God reached down to grab us. Why does he reach down to grab people that are in the lowest pits of despair? It's because it displays his mercy so well. If you look at Ephesians chapter number one, it talks about the the fact that God saves people, he renews people, he regenerates people on the basis of displaying his mercy and his grace. There's not a group of people on the earth that are crying out to God for him to save them. There is a God in heaven who is merciful and gracious who is saving people. We can never expect for people to come to some type of an intellectual consent to where that they ultimately save themselves by their intellect. That's not the basis of salvation. The basis of salvation is that I am undeserving and unwilling 
And God in his grace reaches down from heaven and saves me, not so that I will praise my decision to follow him, but so that I will praise him who has sought me out and saved me. This is his relationship with his people. This is seen most oftenly in the Old Testament as describing his relationship with the Jewish people. Here we again, we are being introduced to Hesed for the Gentile people. We're being introduced to loving kindness for the Gentile people who are who we are. And we can see in Nineveh ourselves. We can see in Nineveh ourselves before we are saved, before we are converted, we can see it in ourselves. Mercy is pity. It's kindness, it's loving kindness, it's gentleness. The Greek word is elios. It means kindness or goodwill towards someone who is miserable or, and or afflicted. And it's connected to a desire to help them. It is compassion or forgiveness shown towards somebody to whom it is within one's power to punish them or harm them. It is a compassion or a kindness shown to somebody who deserves to be condemned. Mercy is the undeserved, unmerited, unearned forgiveness. When I deserve punishment, but instead receive forgiveness and kindness. When I deserve condemnation, but instead receive salvation. A guilty criminal might stand before a judge and plead for, plead for, Mercy, you know something? A criminal who does not see himself guilty will never plead for mercy. He pleads for justice because he's innocent. But a guilty criminal, someone who knows themselves to be guilty, the only hope that that individual has is that that judge will show them that's the gospel. It is the judge's kindness the possibility of the judge's kindness towards the guilty criminal that gives the criminal any hope at all. And that's where we sit. And again, that's just an overview of the text here. Let me read you a few New Testament verses that deal and use this, uh, the, Greek, the Greek word for um, mercy, elios. It says in Titus 3, verses 5 through 7, he saved us not because of works, done by us in righteousness. In other words, he has saved us not because of our righteousness, but he has saved us according to his own mercy. And I love the way that the phrase reads because it says it doesn't say he loves us or he saved us because of his mercy. It says he saved us because of his own mercy. Putting all of the attention on his kindness towards us, his grace towards us, his mercy towards us. By the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. All of these things are on the basis of God's mercy. May we never go to God demanding him to do something as if we've done something to deserve it. Might we go to him with a recognition of our undeserving condition and plead with him for grace and mercy to give us what we need? Ephesians 2 and verse 4 and 5, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, 
Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, on the basis of God's being full or being rich with mercy. The picture is a huge bank account or a huge vault that's not full of money, but it's full of mercy. And God is seeking to share that with us because it is his character to do so. This is God's mercy, his kindness. The second thing in regards to the first point is how is God sovereign in his mercy? It's his sovereign mercy. There was nothing about Nineveh that caused God to do what he did other than the fact that they were completely undeserving and unlikely to be saved. Mercy is something that God, the judge, chooses to show towards a people who don't deserve it. When God chose the Hebrew people, it doesn't say that God chose them because they were significant. It says that God chose them because they were insignificant. There would be no reason that a person would look at the Hebrew people and say, I know why God chose them. Literally, when you look at the Hebrew people, you would say, I can't see why God would have chose them. All throughout the Old Testament, why? Because it's meant to point us to God's merciful character. He wants us to see him in all of this, not us. Mercy is not something that the sinner chooses, earns, or deserves. The sinner, like all sinners, deny their guilt, hide their sin, justify themselves, and blame others. The sinner is, at at all levels, avoiding responsibility, recognizing, uh, uh, refusing to recognize guilt, and refusing to admit helplessness. It is Eve and Adam in the garden all over again every day. That's our nature. Romans 8, 7, and 8 says it this way, for the mind that is set on the flesh or the carnal mind or the natural mind is, is hostile towards God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So when you have a people that are like that, that their, their mind is hostile towards God, they will not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. And in their flesh, they cannot please God. What does a people's hope? Where does a people like that get hope? Where do the Ninevites get hope in a situation like that? When you realize and come to the understanding that you do not have within yourself a desire on your own to pursue after God, that you cannot please God, you're always going to act in your flesh, what hope does an individual like that have? It's only singular, and that is simply this, that the God that we serve is a merciful God. And that he will create within us the desire that we need to follow him. The Bible tells us in Philippians, he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both the ability and the desire to do that which is pleasing in his sight. You know what that is called? When God works in you the desire to do what he wants you to do, that's called mercy. Because you don't want to do it on your own. And no man wants to do it on their own. God orchestrates all of the events of Jonah so that he can show a people mercy. 
God orchestrates all of the events of the book of Jonah so that he can show a rebellious Gentile people mercy. And it is God's hand that's meant to be seen all throughout the book. And only God's hand and Jonah's natural response. Jonah, um, I'm going to close. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to get through this whole thing. I'll get through more of it next week. And it, it'll, it'll go fine because God's stubborn messenger is Jonah. And we'll, we're going to look at him next week anyway. But God orchestrates these events in the life of Jonah, in, the, in Nineveh's life, so that he can show them mercy. Every aspect of what he's doing is, is to, to bring a people who are Gentiles to himself. And there's no quitting. God, you know, the Bible says in Philippians 1, verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who hath began a good work in you will bring it to completion, Right? There's no quitting with God. God's not like, okay, Jonah doesn't want to go now. <laughs> he doesn't want to go to Nineveh, so sorry, Nineveh, you, you fail. Or God is not sending Jonah there and like, oh, you know, I know you're, you're rebellious people. You don't like me, so I mean, you're not going to submit to me. You're not going to repent, so I'm not going to go. No, God had already prepared the hearts of the Ninevites to repent. Matter of fact, the Bible says in, in Timothy, 2 Timothy, I think, 2.25, it says that God is granting people repentance as a gift. He brings people to repentance. So God was sending Nineveh as a messenger to bring about something that God had already planted the seed into the hearts of those individuals. God is orchestrating events so that he can display his own glory because that's what it's about. He didn't just create an opportunity <laughs> He started a process that would ultimately be brought to completion by his mercy and his grace. And Jonah was fully aware of this. I love the, I love the fact that in chapter number four, Jonah says, I knew that you were gonna do this. I, I wish that we did. I wish that we were like that. Honestly, I wish that we would be stubborn to not go out and share the gospel because we know that God is gonna save the person we're sharing the gospel with. We're like totally the opposite, like, oh. No one's going to get saved, right? Jonah's like, I don't want to go because I know you're going to save all these people, <laughs> right? I mean, that's like faith, isn't it? I mean, it's like backwards faith, but it's like he knows the character of God enough to know that he's not sending me to Nineveh for no reason. You ever thought about that? You ever thought about God send you to Hollister for no reason? God bring you here for no reason at all? Or maybe like Nineveh, that God brought you here to share a very difficult, challenging message because he was going to save people, going to convert people. I think I, my prayer is, is that when we're done with this, that we will have a greater passion for evangelism. I think that's what, that's what um, we see in Jonah. It's a call to us. Jonah is a call to us, and the Ninevites is a reflect, and are a reflection of us. And I hope that we can see that as we go through it. I want to close in prayer. <coughs> I thank you all for being here and um, I know we didn't get through any of the book and didn't even get through our second thought this morning. We'll, we'll tackle it next week. We're not in any, any hurry. Um, we want to get the truth that God has here for us. And so next week, we'll look at this guy named Jonah, um, who is obviously pretty stubborn. Thank you for our time together, Lord. Pray that you would bless it and that you would teach us what we need to learn from your word that we would see in this narrative um, some challenges for us.
open up our eyes and see where we're at and see your heart and your love for Ninevites, for Gentiles, for the whole world. And to know that, Lord, where you plant us, you planted us so that we can be a witness of your, of your, of your truth. And we love you for it. Thank you for saving our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.